All right, let's get this over with. Sable Radio, a day after Super Bowl 55, and boy, was that lovely. I'll tell you, there's nothing worse than an awful Super Bowl, and this one was it. Pat's Rams from a couple years ago, also it. It reminds you of the days of the early 90s, mid to late 80s. No, I was not old enough to remember the 80s, any game in the 80s. 90s, sure, you know, 11, 12 years old. But as history has shown us, a conference can go on a streak like the NFC did and win, what did they win, 13 straight uh, after the 83 Raiders. So from 84 San Fran to Dallas in, no, Green Bay in 96. And a lot of those games, most of those games were blowouts, you know, save for Boomer Esiason and the Bengals in 88. Uh, a couple of good ones, Bills, Giants, 90. But that was terrible. 31-9. And from the get-go, you knew, and it's funny, it, where I was at, the house, uh, the small get-together, there was no huge get-together party in this land of COVID, but the small get together where we watch the Super Bowl, I said it early, this might be a romp after the first couple drives where both teams punted because it was obvious Tampa, the Chiefs could not block Tampa. Reed doesn't like leaving in extra guys, no running backs, no tight ends. He blocks five and Remmers at left tackle was a disaster. And the moment an offense cannot block a four-man rush with five players is the moment that offense is behind the eight ball. It's like, for you hockey fans, it's like being shorthanded all game and trying to win that way. Todd Bowles gets a Super Bowl. He obviously got one as a player with Washington. Good for Todd Bowles. Good for Steve McClendon. Le'Veon Bell does not get it. Didn't even get a snap in the game. Which, you know, is kind of surprising. Daryl Williams got some time over him. And Reed did not have a good game. Biennemi, Eric sleeping with Biennemi, did not have a good game. Mahomes was actually pretty decent. I wouldn't say he was great. Maybe mildly good. Maybe. He did everything he could running for his life. Uh, a couple times, the Fran Tarkenton uh, spins in the backfield. He hurt himself trying to spin the long way when he shouldn't have done it. So some of those sacks, some of those lost yards were on Mahomes. But the moral of the story is this. You can't go into a Super Bowl game with your offensive line in shambles like the Chiefs did and think it would turn out okay. What Todd Bowles did from the outset was play too deep. Uh, stat during the Super Bowl, at least 92% of the time he played too deep. I don't know if it finished that way. It probably increased based on what happened in the fourth quarter. He played too deep, played a lot of two-man, and said, my pass rush, my four-man, Shaq Barrett, JPP, Sue, go get him. And that's it. And... Listen, I like Bowles. I think he's an excellent defensive coordinator. 
I give him a ton of credit. He's done a great job this year. But in terms of, you know, execution, game plan for that Super Bowl, it couldn't have been easier for a defensive coordinator. When your four-man pass rush and even their three-man rush was hitting home against that terrible offensive line, when that happens, as a DC, you want that to happen. And as a DC, you understand you don't deserve a ton of credit because you are playing ahead of the game. You are, you have been gifted and granted such an advantage if your pass rush is beat in the offensive line. And the other way is true too. If the offensive line is steamrolling the defensive line in the run game, pass protecting well, then the OC is ahead of the game. It begins in the trenches and you're either ahead of the game or behind the game based on how the trenches play. So Bowles, he just kept on throwing light boxes out there, rarely blitzing, which he loves to do. So give him credit for that. And the Chiefs couldn't even run against light boxes. And once they couldn't run against light boxes, and once their east-west passing game, uh, you know, I didn't see a lot of meshes. I didn't, you know, you got to watch the film, but because it can't see downfield, you can't see the secondary perfectly in the broadcast. I didn't see a lot of underneath stuff that would, uh, you know, get the ball out of Mahomes' hands quicker, three-step underneath the safeties. At the same time, Devin White, Levante David, tremendous job covering tight ends and running backs. Mahomes, 270 yards, two interceptions, no touchdowns, 26 of 49. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, 64 yards, nine carries, went for 7.1, his average. It's kind of misleading. Chiefs went 6.3, 107 yards the entire game. That's really misleading because Mahomes picked up a lot of yards with his legs early. Uh, But I would have loved to see more from Hilaire on the ground. And, you know, that's the book on Reed. Reed used to get hammered by Philadelphia fans for not running enough. And we discussed this on this podcast. It's not as though Reed adjusted. He has here and there incorporating jet sweep principles, incorporating college principles. It's more so that the NFL caught up to Reed. The rule changes, no contact, Charmin soft stuff where teams don't have to run the ball anymore. You know, the short passing game, the screen game, the three-step game could replace it. And once that happened, and once that became standard and universal, the league caught up to Reed rather than the league, rather than Reed catching up to the league. And this was just a terrible uh, happenstance for Reed. You know, first of all, his son is in the car accident earlier in the week. That was a bad omen from that moment on. You go through history. Whenever there's a a situation for a team in the Super Bowl leading up, the week leading up to the game, it's usually not good news. Uh, the two, the most two recent ones that come to mind are the Raiders, the offensive lineman for the Raiders against the Bucks. Interestingly enough, the Bucks only other Super Bowl championship, who they have now two, a perfect two for two in the Super Bowl. And every time they get to the playoffs, they seem to win it. I forget the lineman's name for Oakland in 2002, but he uh, went AWOL, and it was just a disaster from the start, and Tampa routed him. And the other one was the DB from Atlanta. Robinson, I want to say off the top of my head. Um, 
I'll do a little research after the podcast, maybe put it in the comments, but Atlanta against Denver, the year Parcells got the Jets to the AFC title game, there was a situation with Atlanta, and then Denver routed Atlanta. Never a good sign when something bad happens leading up to the game. That's number one. Number two, Eric Fisher being out, the offensive line being in shambles, not good. And the issue as it relates to the Jets, before we get to Brady, because we got to talk about Brady, the issue as it relates to the Jets is this. Fans now watching the Super Bowl and coming to the conclusion that, hey, look, Mahomes can't do a damn thing if the offensive line isn't right. Therefore, Douglas and the Jets should select Sewell, the Oregon tackle, number two. It is not only idiotic, it's insane to point to one singular instance and say, hey, look at this. This happened. So the Jets must do this. Folks, Mahomes was a first-round quarterback pick, 10th overall. Sort of in the mold of Zach Wilson or Justin Fields at number two overall. The Not the consensus top guy, but the second or third guy. Mahomes was second. Watson was third that year behind Trubisky, who was number one. Mahomes won the Super Bowl last year. Got to the Super Bowl this year. Why is that not the instance to point to and say, hey, Mahomes has done it with a pretty average offensive line. Why not take Zach Wilson? I don't know. Because people want their narrative to be molded around whatever instance they can point to. And last night provided them that instance. Joe Douglas won't do that, obviously. And you'll never find a more pro-offensive line guy than me. I hammered McCagnan from 2016 on. Hammered the Le'Veon Bell signing. You don't sign a running back. A running back. Very different than a quarterback. You don't sign a running back when your offensive line is garbage. You just don't do it. It's, it's counterproductive. So I've been hammering McCagnan since 2016. The neglect to the offensive line was criminal in the football world not selecting a first round offensive lineman since 2006 criminal at the same time you can't look at Mahomes and what happened and think that's the reason Sewell should be picked number two don't be that JV person don't be JV graduate to varsity please the way the Jets are going to look at this is simple they have three picks in the top 34. Two, 23, 34. Quarterback. Darnold, option one. Watson, option number two. If Douglas doesn't like Darnold and he's heading into the fourth year and they can't pick up that fifth-year option, it's too costly for a guy you don't know, you know who could do it, could frankly get it done, then the only other option is... It's not going to be Wentz, at least I don't think. The only other option is a quarterback in the draft. So it's Zach Wilson or Fields at two. And then that's it. Is Are you comfortable with Mac Jones or Kyle Trask if they drop to 23? I don't even think both will. Trask might go before 23. Maybe Mac Jones lasts, but I don't think either will. If you don't take the quarterback at two, where's the quarterback? Where do you get that guy? Conversely, if you take the quarterback at two, 
There are plenty of interior offensive linemen available at number 23 and 34. This is the exact reason Douglas did the right thing by not taking a receiver at 11 last year, Jerry Judy or Ruggs or C.D. Lamb and waited because receiver is deep. It was deep last year. It's deep again this year. It'll be forever deep moving forward because of the pass happy rules. It's not always like that for offensive linemen. But this year it is. There are so many interior offensive linemen available at 23 and 34. Uh, Tackles. Let's go through the tackles first. Jalen Mayfield, Tevin Jenkins, Alex Leatherwood, Liam Eichenberg. Then the interior, Wyatt Davis, Creed Humphrey, Elijah Vera Tucker. There will be. You could take a quarterback at two and take two interior offensive linemen. One at 23, one at 34. You could take an edge at 23. Hopefully it's Gregory Russo, because I think that guy, if he's available at 23, the Jets should hop all over him with his athleticism. I know he opted out last year, which is a little concerning, but they could still go edge at 23, interior lineman at 34 with Wyatt Davis. Sign Joe Tooney. Free agency is another factor. There's no quarterback in free agency. There could be a guard with Tooney or Scherf. So you can't point to one instance and say, this is what they should do because of this. Got to look at it in totality. And when looking at it in totality, it's obvious the interior line or just offensive line in general, even a tackle, there's plenty of them. And they're right where the Jets are picking, late first, early second. There's no quarterbacks there. So... What do you do? Um, and I said Trask before. Obviously, Trey Lance and Mac Jones are the two in the first round. Trask is the guy, you know, if the Jets don't like Darnold, don't land Watson, don't go quarterback at number two, Trask would be that guy if they don't go with any of those routes. But it would be later in the draft. Do you feel comfortable? I sure wouldn't. It's why quarterback at two is still the best option if Watson isn't an option and if Darnold is off the table. If Darnold is your guy, then okay, it makes sense for Sewell. But that's if you believe in Darnold. And at this point, Darnold is a huge question mark. So is Zach Wilson. So is Justin Fields. I put them all in the same category as huge question marks. The difference is, Darnold only has one year left at the rookie salary. Zach Wilson and Fields have four years left. It's a huge deal. So Mahomes, the offensive line last night, don't buy into the, you know, the monkey see monkey do. Hey, Mahomes is running for his life. Look what quarterbacks do. Great quarterbacks do when offensive lines aren't right. Therefore, the Jets should take soul. Come on. Two things could be true at once. Three things could be true at once. Gase did not do right by Le'Veon Bell. McCagnan didn't do right by Le'Veon Bell signing him. But Le'Veon Bell still lost all of his steps at his advanced age as a running back, which was 27. And what is he, 28 now? I think he was 27 by the time he played his first game with the Jets. So, you know, don't get into the semantics It's about viewing it in totality. Now, let's get this over with. Tom Brady, you got to respect the guy. 
you have to. You have to tip the cap. You have to, uh, you know, not drool over his greatness, but you have to acknowledge his greatness. Call him the greatest of all time? Sure, go for it. But also, it's fair to put him in the top three of all time with Unitas and Montana. And there are interesting reasons why that we'll get into a little bit, but this podcast isn't about that. This podcast is about, is about Brady and winning his seventh title. You know, he really didn't do much yesterday. He played a clean game, good game, three touchdowns, 200 yards, 21 of 29. Didn't have to do much. By the time he threw his second touchdown to Gronk, it was over. Bucks ran the ball well. Fournette went for 89. Jones, 61, 4.4 yards per carry, which is an excellent mark for a team that was winning the entire game. If you're over four and you you blew out the opponent the entire game, that's an excellent mark. Usually that number will dip the later you get into the game. But Brady, as we discussed recently, he manipulated the Matrix. Morpheus saved him in 2001. And, you know, what can you do? You know, he's not a Patriot anymore. So all Jets fans out there, you you didn't have to throw up for seven hours. Maybe it was just two or three. And to be honest, you know, it's more of a a football fan thing to be frustrated about Brady than a Jet thing. You want to see other guys get opportunities. You want to see a more balanced story unfold. It's why I get frustrated with dynasties. Not all dynasties, but dynasties that are just too much. Like, enough already. I want to see new blood. The, the Golden State Warriors, I got sick and tired of it. Uh, LeBron, I got sick of LeBron, even though he didn't win. Winning the East every year. Uh, Oilers in the 80s, I would have been sick and tired of that. Even the Yankees, I grew up a diehard Yankees fan. I wouldn't say I got sick and tired of the Yankees dynasty. I got more sick and tired of the fans jumping on the bandwagon and George completely destroying what that team was signing Giambi going the superstar route rather than uh, doing what Buck and stick Michael did to get them to that dynasty while George was suspended and away from the game. So I got a little sick from that as well. Brady, obviously the bucks are not a dynasty somewhere last night. Belichick was eating a subway sandwich with the TV off, but it's a little disgusting, especially with the way the penalties unfolded. I mean, you got to be kidding me with the penalties. When was the Bucks' first penalty called? Third quarter? Did they have one in the first half? I don't think they did. They finished with, uh, where is it here? They finished with four for 39, while the Chiefs finished with 11 for 120. And Brady, how many times did he overthrow a player? A lot of the times he did it intentionally to try to draw the penalty. But what happened to the uncatchable rule? I honestly don't know if they took that away. I know years back, there was an emphasis on calling flags in spite of the ball's location, but I don't know if that was ever an official change in the rule book because it's silly. Why in the world would you ever call a pass interference when the ball's you know, completely uncatchable? If it's close and there's any margin for error, yeah, you throw the flag. But for instance, the one in the end zone against Tyron Matthew, I didn't even see interference. Didn't even see interference. And it was a complete 360 from the Bucks green Bay game. 
in the NFC Championship game where they called that one loose. They let them play until the last game where Brady obviously got the play, got the break, got the NFC title in his pocket once that pass interference was called. But it, the penalties were outrageous. With Were a lot of them penalties? Sure. Did the Chiefs deserve to be penalized more than the Bucks? Yes. But by no means should it have been that drastic. No chance. No chance. And I haven't watched the film yet, but I will. And I'll come back with another opinion on that once it's all said and done. So other than, you know, the unsettling feeling of a terrible Super Bowl, Brady winning another one, what can you do? I mean, you just you tip your cap, you say he's a hell of a quarterback, and you move on. Now, a couple things regarding Brady. Uh, see, this is what happens. When someone does something great, everyone takes it too far. People are now claiming he's the greatest winner in the history of team sports. Those people have lost their damn minds. Bill Russell, this man, how many championships? I forget. I think it's 11, but let's double check just so I'm not wrong. Four, eight, yeah, 11 championships, folks. 11. Yogi Berra, 10. Maurice Richard with the Canadians, I think it's eight Stanley Cups. It's either seven or eight. Uh, if I'm wrong, uh, correct me in the comments on YouTube. Come on. He's not the greatest winner in the history of team sports. First of all, he's played forever, and the lack of physicality in today's game compared to uh, the days of yesteryear is a huge benefit for him. I wrote an article recently to see if I could ruffle some feathers titled Reasons Tom, Tom Brady's Goat Status Needs to Be Challenged More Often. I didn't not call him the goat, but I detailed reasons in which it should be challenged. See, right now it's unanimous because it's current, it's a story, the media is going to run wild with it, and that's it. And that's the way it is. But we got to remember to keep our heads here. He's not Bill Russell. He's not even Yogi Berra. Seven Super Bowls is a hell of a feat. There's no question about it. He's got now got more Super Bowls than any other team in history. But the NFL didn't start in 1966. There were decades of championships before that. And for some reason, uh, writers want to pretend NFL started in the modern era, and it didn't. But the reasons Brady, Brady's GOAT status needs to be challenged more often, it, I mean, it's some of it's simple, some of it's not. The physicality. He doesn't have to worry about his career being cut short due to injury. He had that one knee injury, missed one year, and that's it. Obviously, he's rookie year two. He doesn't have to worry about Charles Martin uh, driving Jim McMahon into the turf 10 seconds after the play. He doesn't have to worry about Buddy Ryan bounties. He doesn't have to worry about Joe Montana, uh, a Leonard Marshall coming and just completely destroying Joe Montana for those who've seen that clip. Joe Montana, how many games did he play? Not as many as Brady. Not even close. Might be half by the time it's all said and done. It's a different game. When you look at Brady's stats, it coincides with the explosion of passing in the NFL. For instance, 2008, 
2007 is when passing really started to take off, when the rules really started to take shape. Interestingly, Brady against Peyton Manning, 2003 AC Championship game, Ty Law, Belichick, Stevies were mugging Wayne and Harrison, and in the flurries in Foxborough, the Colts just couldn't get it done, and that really sparked the conversation. Why are they not calling these pass interferences? Why, why are they not calling these holding penalties or illegal contacts? Slowly but surely, they started to do it and put an emphasis on it. 2006 AFC title game, Pats jump out to, a, I think, a 21-3 lead at halftime. Colts come storming back, win the Super Bowl. That offseason, Belichick changes everything. He saw the writing on the wall. He saw where things were going. So he changed his team from a defensive first team in terms of spending under the salary cap to an offensive first team. Wes Welker, Randy Moss, Brady goes nuts, breaks the single season touchdown record with 50, puts up his most uh, yards in a, in a season. And from that point forward, it just spiked for Brady, just like it spiked for the rest of the league. 2007, 214.3 average yards, pass yards per game. 2011, just four years later, 229.7 per game. Today, 240.2 per game in 2020, the most ever. Compare that to 1992, 187.6. From 240 to 187. Go back further to 1979, 180.4 per game. Go back further to 1958 uh johnny unitas versus the giants the tv game for football that changed everything 180.4 the game has changed and brady has benefited drew Brees is the is the passing king right now with the most yards does every anyone think drew Brees is the greatest quarterback in history stop it brady's number two he'll take the mantle he's already got the pass touchdown mantle It's misleading. You can't use stats to back up his GOAT status. For instance, his passing yards per game. Well, first, let's go over the number, the sheer numbers. Montana, 40,000, about 40,000 passing yards. United, same thing, 40,000. Breeze is over 80,000. Brady is close to 80,000, 79,204. They doubled those two guys, Montana and United. So when you look at the rankings and the sheer stats, It's not even close, but it can't be done that way. You have to do it based on the average for that era. For example, Brady's per game, and this is per game started, not per game played, to be fair to every quarterback. Per game started, Brady's average is 264 yards per game throughout his 20-year career. 264, the league average... From 2001 to uh, 2020 is 223.1. So he is about 40 yards above the league average, 40.7. Montana, his career average, 247.2 per game. The league average during Montana's career, 196.4. Montana's stats are better. His yards is better, are better. He is 50.8 yards above the league average, whereas Brady's 40.7. Unitas' 
per game start average, 217.5 yards. His The league average during his career, 1956 to 1973, 165.6. So Unitas is even better than Montana, 51.9 yards above the league average. I think Dan Marino's numbers would blow all these guys out of the water you know, when comparing to the league average in that era. But when comparing, I think, the three greatest quarterbacks, Brady is number three in terms of regular season stats. Apply this to touchdowns, apply this to any stat. You're going to come across differing results. Differing results that surprise you. It's not Brady who's been the, mo- the, you know, the greatest statistical quarterback, and it's not even close. You know, during his career, was he ever considered the bona fide best quarterback? Only recently, only late in his career. The first decade, it was Peyton Manning. Then Aaron Rodgers took the crown as the most talented guy. What Brady has going for him, and what he'll always have going for him, is he's the best big money quarterback in history. And he wins. So from that standpoint, if you want to call him the GOAT, absolutely. I won't argue. I wouldn't argue with that at all. But don't call him the GOAT based on seven championships alone. You can't do it. He's been fortunate in a lot of regards. Belichick is a great coach. Uh, Do I think Brady is the more important piece? Yes. But them two together in a salary cap era is greatness. The one nod for Brady is that he did win seven. Uh, At least seven. Who knows? Maybe he wins another one next year. He did win seven in the salary cap era where it's tougher. But in terms of everything else, even the cheating scandals, that's a... It's an issue that needs to be discussed. It's at least a topic. Uh, Stats cannot be relied upon. And when comparing against a league average, it's evident. But no one goes down that road. No one takes the time to do that extra work. They just look at the rankings. He's got the most. He's got the most. He's got the most. He's the greatest. He's the best big money quarterback of all time. No question. And the physicality aspect is huge. He came during a time not only when passing spiked and the league went crazy with it, but he also came during a time where the league has never been this charm and soft. So he's been able to play so many more games than the other guys, especially Montana and Unitas. Knicks off tonight. Rangers playing the Islanders right now. Actually just started uh, in terms of when I'm recording this, 7-13 right now. Knicks Nets, not until tomorrow, but the Knicks acquire Derrick Rose for Dennis Smith Jr. and a 2021 second round pick. Charlotte's pick originally, according to Wojnarowski. I don't know what that Knicks are doing. I have no idea. Tibbs runs a tight rotation. Who is going to get bounced from the rotation? Is Rose going to play point guard? Is quickly going to play a lot more two guard now? I have no idea. I don't know what this means. Does Is Peyton the odd man out? Is Rivers the odd man out? Because with Rose as an extra body, it, it, there's just too many people. There's too, there are too many guards, too many twos, ones, twos, and threes. You know, the starting lineup, Peyton, Bullock, Barrett. Then you got Quickly, Rivers, Burks, and now Rose. That's seven. 
that's too much. I don't understand what the plan is with, with Leon Rose here, uh, but there must be a plan with Leon Rose and Perry and Thibodeau. I, I mean, I guess the only good thing is Rose and Thibodeau are familiar with each other from their Bulls, Bulls days. So we'll see how that plays out. Knicks, I didn't see the game Sunday. They played during the day on Super Bowl day. I hate that. Just don't play on Sunday. Don't play on Super Bowl Sunday. You know, play a day game on Saturday or night game on Saturday, come back Monday. Just don't play on Sunday. Everyone's going to miss the game. Not everyone, but, you know, a good chunk is going to miss the game, and you don't want that. So I can't comment on what happened Sunday. I know they lost, so they fell back to three games under five hundred. Still in the eighth seed. Nets still in the three seed, if I'm not mistaken. They're about to take off. The Nets are going to take off really soon. Just the nature of the sport with those three. There's no way they won't take off. The question with them will come down to the playoffs and whether or not they can play enough defense. It'll be about defense for the Nets. They got to hope the NBA has moved into an era where, like football in rushing, where rushing doesn't matter as much, and defense as well. Uh, Nets got to hope. Brooklyn has to hope the NBA is moving even more rapidly in that direction where defense won't matter as much. Like I said, Rangers Islanders right now, Shesterkin in goal. And speaking of teams who are going to take off, the Rangers will take off too, because Shesterkin is a hell of a goalie. The preseason's over. He struggled in his first several games, almost like it was a preseason. And the officials called the games like it was a preseason. Tight, terrible, awful to watch. But with Shesterkin, I think he's going to be one of the better goalies in this league very soon this year. And the Rangers, even though they're dealing with injuries, Heedle, they have depth. Uh, this kid, this defender who scored that crazy goal, Beto, I don't even know how to pronounce his name yet. If he gives them anything, it's tremendous. Him and Hajek, Hayek have to Libor. Libor Hayek have to do well as that uh, third pairing, but their depth really comes in at the forward position. Kevin Rooney's tremendous. D. Giuseppe's tremendous. They're responsible. They're disciplined. They don't do stupid things. And that fourth line is really, can really be a lockdown defensive fourth line. D. Giuseppe's playing a lot on the third line or even second line right now. Uh, But, Rooney, DiGiuseppe, Lemieux. I mean, and, and the worst part about it for the Rangers might be the best part. Heedle and Blackwell were two of their best players before they get injured. So they can look forward to those two guys coming back. Fox is a tremendous defense. I mean, he's good for one turnover a game, but he's tremendous. Kreider just needs to put his head down and play north-south. And if he does that, he's a, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with, but He's inconsistent, disappears at times. Panarin, you know Panarin's going to be fine. Bushnevich, I like what Bushnevich is doing this year. I wasn't a huge fan of his coming into the season, but he's really he's really impressed me. Um, you know, the kid Lafreniere, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be slow with him. Kako as well. But again, I think they're going to take off. They have sneaky depth that people didn't think they had. And with Shesterkin, uh, Quinn cannot rotate these goalies. I like Georgiev, but Shesterkin's that much better, and he's got to play. He's got to be a starter. 
So that's where the Rangers stand. Uh, they're looking for a big win against the Islanders tonight to, I think, get over 500. I think they're 500 right now, if I'm not mistaken. Last topic, Trevor Bauer. He came out with a tweet. Uh, when was it? The 7th, which was yesterday on Super Bowl Sunday. Which, after the game, maybe trying to sneak one in there. Quote, Mets fans, I owe you an explanation and apology. My intention this entire offseason was to engage with fans in a ways that made the offseason and free agent process more interesting. I woke up early on Friday not knowing what my decision would be and spent the next five hours on the phone with my representation team trying to figure that out. I wasn't on social media or my website as my marketing and digital team was managing both at the time, so I didn't see what happened until after the fact. I've taken some time over the last two days to figure it out, and I take full responsibility for the mistakes outlined below. In the spirit of transparency, here's what happens. I'm not going to read the rest, end quote. But basically, with the Bauer situation, Mets fans, they've been front and center this offseason. Steve Cohen, Lindor, now Bauer. And Steve Cohen, in in a sneaky way, has fed into the problem here with Bauer because Steve Cohen started taking this new tact. He created this new thing, social media sports ownership. You know, you really hadn't seen an owner be so vocal. Ask the fans, hey, what should we do? Even though it's really garbage. He's not going to listen to the fans in terms of transactions. He's going to listen to his front office. He's engaging. Obviously, Portnoy scared him away with the whole Robin Hood issue, but it's an issue to have Cohen, your owner, on Twitter. It's better that he stays away, but that's a second topic. The Mets fan on social media, on Twitter, is loud, is vocal. Cohen fed into it. And now think about it with Bauer. Bauer's agent, I forget her name, but her agent has been vocal as well, and she kind of trolled Mets fans after it was announced Bauer was going to go to L.A. Think about this. He comes out with merch. He sells Mets merch. He runs a a contest for Mets merch. I know he did more too. I I wasn't fully engaged in the Bauer hysteria. But the point of the matter is this. This is the start of something very scary. His representation, the way these guys negotiate with clubs, due to social media, they could do so many different things to manipulate leverage and contract talks. For instance, where's the negative in trying to hype up both fan bases, the Mets and the Dodgers? There are only positives. The pressure becomes that much more, uh, you know, manic for the Mets ownership by Bauer doing what he did with Mets with the Mets fan base. So he goes back and forth between New York and L.A., trying to up the offer, trying to use the Mets to up the offer, get more money out of L.A. And whether it was Bauer's idea or the agent's idea, this is the wild, wild west. And I don't think we've seen anything yet in terms of agency strategy to try to do right by the client. The question will be, which agents don't go down that road because they know it's unethical and because they know social media really can't be, be you know, policed. And there's a lot of gray area where it's legal to sell merch 
that's not officially Mets licensed, but has all the earmarks of Mets colors and, and what have you. That's the thing I take from it, that guys, free agents and negotiations can hype up a fan base and really try to gain leverage. And whether that was him or his agent, it doesn't matter. His faux apology, his awful apology, he shouldn't even have apologized because it's transparent what they did. They used it. They played this game for leverage. And other agents are going to catch on and you're going to see a lot more of this moving forward. And because social media, it's the wild, wild west, there's really no stopping it. And I think in 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be serious issues and a lot of new rules and guidelines surrounding this sort of thing with free agency. So that's where we stand. Rangers Isles right now. Knicks with D. Rose, Bauer, and the Mets fan gone crazy. And the sports agent who's looking and licking his chops, licking his and her chops right now, understanding that there are different ways to manipulate leverage amid contract negotiations. And, of course, the Super Bowl, which we got through and put a pretty bow on. It was ugly. Bowles deserves credit, but I'll tell you what, the Chiefs' game plan was terrible, and their offensive line was just Mike Remmers at left tackle should be the MVP. He was that bad. And when your four-man pass rush is hitting home every time and the offense can't run, capitalize against light boxes, and you're allowed to play too deep every play, game over. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Mahomes. I don't care if it's Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I don't care if it's Tyree Kill. Game over. And that's what happened. That's what I saw early in the game, and that's what transpired. And for the Jets and the Jet fan, listen, when looking at free agency, looking at the draft, look at it in its totality. Don't look at it with a narrow mindset in which, A, Mahomes, the best quarterback in the sport, can't do anything if the offensive line's not great. I'm as pro-offensive line as anyone, even more so. But I'm also pro-quarterback, and I'm pro-value. And I understand the value is in looking at the top three picks in totality. And it just makes more sense to not go with Sewell at number two. It makes more sense to go with the quarterback. And then grab your edge, grab your lineman, your interior offensive lineman at 23 and 34. Check out JetsXFactor.com. Going to be dropping a few more analytics and film pieces tomorrow. Uh, the best of Bryce Hall in his rookie season is coming out soon. Look for that on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday morning. Nanny, I should have an analytics article up Tuesday morning. And download, rate, review Sable Radio at iTunes. Check it out on Spotify and all of the apps, Stitcher, TuneIn, all that good stuff. Until next time. Thank you.